Welcome to Celebrate Poe. My name is George Bartley, and this is a milestone episode for Celebrate Poe, the podcast's 150th episode, Before Christmas. The music for the intro and outro for this podcast episode is from Come Listen to My Story. And first, let me start by thanking you if you've listened to any or all of the previous five episodes regarding A Christmas Carol. Now, this episode will first take a look at three famous poems. Like Dickens' classic story, the first poem is also known as A Christmas Carol and was written by James Russell Lowell, one of the greatest poets of the 19th century and a writer that Edgar Allan Poe greatly admired. In Graham's magazine in February 1845, Lowell actually wrote regarding Poe, Mr. Poe is still in the prime of light. Mr. Poe is still in the prime of life, being about 32 years of age, and has probably as yet given but an earnest of his powers. As a critic, he has shown so superior an ability that we cannot but hope that he will collect his essays and give them a more durable form. They would be a very valuable contribution to our literature, and would fully justify all we have said in his praise. We could refer to many others of his poems than those we have quoted to prove that he is the possessor of a pure and original vein. His tales and essays have equally shown him a master in prose. It is not for us to assign him his definite rank among contemporary authors, but we may be allowed to say that we know of none who has displayed more varied and striking abilities. And now, the poem, A Christmas Carol, by James Russell Lowell. What means this glory round our feet, the Magi mused, more bright than morn? And voices chanted clear and sweet, Today the Prince of Peace is born. What means that star, the shepherd said, That brightens through the rocky glen? And angels answering overhead sang, Peace on earth, good will to men. Tis eighteen hundred years and more Since those sweet oracles were dumb. We wait for him, like them of yore. Alas, he seems so slow to come. But it was said in words of gold, no time or sorrow e'er shall dim. That little child might be bold in perfect trust to come to him. All round about our feet shall shine a light like that the wise men saw if we our loving wills incline to that sweet life which is the law. The second poem in this episode reflects the excitement of Christmas Eve and the anticipation of Christmas, The Night Before Christmas by Clement Clark Moore. Moore was a professor at Columbia College, now known as Columbia University. Mr. Moore published A Visit from St. Nicholas anonymously in 1823. It was frequently reprinted many times without credit until Moore later acknowledged that he was the author of the poem. 
He had written the poem for his children and insisted, they insisted uh, that he claim authorship. The Night Before Christmas by Clement Moore. "'Twas the night before Christmas when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. And Mama in her kerchief and I in my cap had just settled down for a long winter's nap. When out on the lawn there arose such a clatter, I sprang from the bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the shutters and threw open the sash. The moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave the luster of midday to objects below. When what to my wondering eyes should appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer— with a little old driver, so lively and quick, I knew in a moment it must be St. Nick. More rapid than eagles in his coursers they came, and he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen, O Comet, O Cupid, on O Donder and Blitzen, to the top of the porch, to the top of the wall, now dash away, dash away, dash away all. As dry leaves that before the wild hurricane fly, when they meet with an obstacle, mount to the sky. So up to the housetop, the coursers they flew, with the sleigh full of toys, and St. Nicholas too. And then in a twinkling, I heard on the roof the prancing and pawing of each little hoof. As I drew in my head and was turning around, down the chimney St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry, his cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard of his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke it encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a little round belly that shook when he lapped like a bowl full of jelly. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him in in spite of myself. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave me to know I had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word, but went straight to his work and filled all the stockings, then turned with a jerk, and laying his finger aside of his nose and giving a nod, up the chimney he rose. He sprang to his sleigh, to his team gave a whistle, and away they all flew like the down of a thistle. But I heard him exclaim, ere he drove out of sight, Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night. And finally, the classic short story, The Gift of the Magi by O. Henry. The work is somewhat reminiscent of a set of Poe, the story a set of Poe, a work that Celebrate Poe will highlight tomorrow or in the next episode. 
you could say that both stories, The Gift of the Magi and A Set of Poe, uh, both have a surprise ending. The mothers of Poe and O. Henry died uh, when the uh, respective writers were three years old. The writers both struggled with alcoholism, and they both wrote some of the greatest short stories ever written by an American. And now, The Gift of the Magi. There was clearly nothing to do but flop down on the shabby little couch and howl, so Della did it, which instigates the moral reflection that life is made up of sobs, sniffles, and smiles, with sniffles predominating. One dollar and eighty-seven cents, that was all, and sixty cents of it was in pennies. Pennies saved one and two at a time by bulldozing the grocer and the vegetable man and the butcher. Three times Della counted it. One dollar and eighty-seven cents, and the next day would be Christmas. While the mistress of the home is gradually subsiding from the first stage to the second, take a look at the home, a furnished flat at $8 per week. In the vestibule below was a letter box into which no letter would go and an electric button from which no mortal finger could coax a ring. Also, appertaining thereunto was a card bearing the name Mr. James Dillingham Young. The Dillingham had been flung to the breeze during a former period of prosperity when its, when its possessor was being paid $30 per week. Now when the income was shrunk to $20, though, they were thinking seriously of contracting to a far more modest and unassuming apartment. But whenever Mr. James Dillingham Young came home and reached his flat, he was called Jim and greatly hugged by Mrs. James Dillingham Young, already introduced to you as Della, which is all very good. Della finished her cry and attended to her cheeks with a powder rag. She stood by the window and looked out dully at a gray cat walking a gray fence in a gray backyard. Tomorrow would be Christmas Day, and she had only a dollar and eighty-seven cents with which to buy Jim a present. She had been saving every penny she could for months with this result. Twenty dollars a week doesn't go far. Expenses had always been greater than she had calculated. They always are. Only a dollar eighty-seven to buy a present for Jim. Her Jim. Many a happy hour she had spent planning for something nice for him. Something fine and rare and sterling. Something just a little bit near to being worthy of the honor of being owned by Jim. There was a pier glass between the windows of the room. Perhaps you have seen a pier glass in an $8 flat. A very thin and a very agile person may, by observing his reflection in a, a rapid sequence of longitudinal strips, obtain a fairly accurate conception of his looks. Dill, being slender, had mastered the art. Suddenly, she whirled from the window and stood before the glass, her eyes 
shining brightly, but her face had lost its color within twenty seconds. Rapidly, she pulled down her hair and let it fall to its full length. Now, there were two possessions of the James Dillingham Youngs in which they both took a mighty pride. One was Jim's gold watch that had been his father's and his grandfather's. The other was Della's hair. Had the Queen of Sheba lived in the flat across the air shaft, Della would have let her hair hang out the window some day, some day to dry just to deprecate Her Majesty's jewels and gifts. Had King Solomon been the janitor with all his treasures piled up in the basement, Jim would have pulled out his watch every time he passed, just to see him pluck at his beard from envy. So now Della's beautiful hair fell all about her, ripping and shining like a cascade of brown waters. It reached below her knee and made itself almost a garment for her. And then she did it up again nervously and quickly. Once she faltered for a minute and stood still while a tear or two splashed on the the worn red carpet. On went her old brown jacket, on went her old brown hat. With a whirl of skirts and with a brilliant sparkle still in her eyes, she fluttered out the door and down the stairs to the street. Where she stopped, the sign read, Mademoiselle Sofronet, hair goods of all kinds. One flight up, Della ran and collected herself, panning. Mademoiselle Large, too white, chilly, hardly looked like Sophronay. Uh, would you buy my hair? asked Stella. I buy hair, said Mademoiselle. Take your hat off and let's have a sight at the looks of it. Down rippled the brown cascade. Twenty dollars, said Mademoiselle, lifting the mass with a practice hand. Uh, Give it to me quick, said Della. Oh, and and the next two hours tripped by on rosy wings. Forget the hashed metaphor. She was ransacking the stores for Jim's present. She found it at last. It surely had been made for Jim and no one else. There was no other like it in any of the stores, and she had turned all of them inside out. It was a platinum chain, simple and and chaste in design, properly proclaiming its value by substance alone and not by ornamentation, as all good things should do. It was even worthy of the watch. As soon as she saw it, she knew that it must be Jim's. It was like him. Quietness and value, the description applied to both. Twenty-one dollars they, they took from her for it, and she hurried home with the 87 cents. With that chain on his watch, Jim might properly, probably be anxious about the time in any company. Grand as the watch was, he sometimes looked at it on the sly on account of the old leather strap that he used in place of a chain. 
When Della reached home, her her intoxication gave way a little to prudence and reason. She got out her curling irons and lighted the gas and went to work repairing the ravages made by generosity added to love, which is always a tremendous task, dear friends, a mammoth task. Within 40 minutes, her head was covered uh, with tiny, close-lying curls that made her look wonderfully like a young schoolboy. She looked at her reflection in the mirror long, carefully, and critically. If Jim doesn't kill me, she said to herself, uh, before he takes a second look at me, he'll, he'll say, I-, I look like a Coney Island chorus girl. But what could I do? Oh, what could I do with a dollar and 87 cents? At seven o'clock, the coffee was made and the frying pan was on the back of the stove, hot and ready to cook the chops. Jim was never late. Della doubled the fob chain in her hand and sat on the corner of the table near the door that he had always entered. Then she heard his step on the stair away down on the first flight, and she turned white for just a moment. She had a habit for saying a little silent prayer about the simplest everyday things, and now she whispered, "'Please, God,' Make him think I'm still pretty. The door opened and Jim stepped in and closed it. He looked thin and very serious. Poor fellow, he was only 22 and to be burdened with a family. He needed a new overcoat and he was without gloves. Jim stepped inside the door as immovable as a a setter at the scent of quail. His eyes were fixed upon Della, and there was an expression in them that that she could not read, and it terrified her. It was not anger, nor surprise, nor disapproval, nor horror, nor any of the sentiments that she had been prepared for. He simply stared at her fixedly with that peculiar expression on his face. Della wriggled off the table and went for him. Jim, darling, she cried, don't look at me that way. I've had my hair cut off and sold because I couldn't have lived through Christmas without giving you a present. It'll grow out again. You won't mind, will you? I just I just had to do it. My hair grows awfully fast. Say, Merry Christmas, Jim, and let's be happy. You don't know what a nice, what a, a beautiful, nice gift I've got for you. You've cut off your hair, asked Jim laboriously, as if he had not arrived at that patent fact yet, even after the hardest mental labor. Cut it off and sold it, said Della. Don't you like me just as well anyhow? I'm me without my hair, ain't I? Jim looked about the room curiously. You say your your hair is gone, he said, with an air almost of idiocy. You needn't look for it, said Della. It's sold. I I, I tell you, sold and gone, too. It's Christmas Eve, boy. Be good to me, for it went for you. Maybe the hairs of my head were numbered, she went on with sudden serious sweetness, but nobody could ever count my love for you. Shall I put the chops on, Jim? Out of his trance, 
Jim seemed quickly to wake. He enfolded his Della. For ten seconds, let us regard with discreet scrutiny some inconsequential object in the other direction. Eight dollars a week or a million a year. What is the difference? A mathematician or a wit would give you the wrong answer. The Magi brought valuable gifts, but that was not among them. This dark assertion will be illuminated later on. Jim drew a package from his overcoat pocket and threw it upon the table. Don't make any mistake, Dell, he said, about me. I I don't think there's anything in the way of a haircut or a shave or a shampoo that could make me like my girl any less. But if you unwrap that package, you may see why, why you had me going a while at first. White fingers and nimble tore at the string and paper, and then an ecstatic scream of joy, and then, alas, a quick feminine change to hysterical tears and wails, necessitating the immediate employment of all the comforting powers of the Lord of the Flat. For there lay the combs, the set of combs, side and back, that Della had worshipped long in a Broadway window. Beautiful combs, pure tortoise shell, with jeweled rims, just the shade to wear in the beautiful, vanished hair. They were expensive combs, she knew, and in her heart she had simply craved and yearned over them without the least hope of possession. And now they were hers, but the tresses that should have adorned the coveted adornments were gone. But she hugged them to her bosom, and at length she was able to look up with a dim eyes and a smile and say, my, my hair grows so fast, Jim. And then Della leaped up like a little singed cat and cried, Oh, oh! Jim had not yet seen his beautiful present. She held it out to him eagerly upon her open palm. The dull, precious metal seemed to flash with a reflection of her bright and ardent spirit. Isn't it a dandy, Jim? I hunted all over town to find it. You'll have to look at the time a hundred times a day now. Give me your watch. I want to see how it looks on it. And instead of obeying, Jim tumbled down on the couch and put his hands under the back of his head and smiled. Dell said he, Let, let's put our Christmas presents away and, and keep them a while. They're too nice to use just at present. I sold the watch to get the money to buy your combs. And now suppose you put the chops on. The Magi, as you know, were wise men, wonderfully wise men. They brought gifts to the babe in the manger. They invented the art of giving Christmas presents. Being wise, their gifts were, no doubt, wise ones. And here I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat whose most who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all who give gifts, these two 
were the wisest. Oh, all who give and receive gifts such as they are wisest. Everywhere they are wisest. They are the Magi. Join Celebrate Poe tomorrow for episode 151 and I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. The Bells by Edgar Allan Poe and George Aid's classic story, A Set of Poe. Oh yes, and I'd like to end with a few lines tomorrow, and I do mean a few lines by William Shakespeare about the season. Sources include A Christmas Carol by James Russell Lowell, Twas the Night Before Christmas by Clement Moore, and The Gift of the Magi from the Complete Short Stories of O. Henry. Thank you for listening to Celebrate Poe, a deep dive into the life, times, and works of America's Shakespeare, Edgar Allan Poe.